Praise the Lord today, and this is Pastor Adams, president and founder of Truth Matters Ministries in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank the Lord today for you joining our Truth Matters podcast. And we take very seriously the charge to be attendants and to be a custodians of this very important and vital ministry of contending for the faith that has once and for all been delivered unto the saints according to Jude 3. And we've been going through uh, episodes entitled Homosexuality. And we know that there are so many things in our world today that um, really impact our society and our morals and our values. And one of the very leading tips of the spear within those discussions and those categories is homosexuality. We want to make sure that we present and teach and share this particular topic with gravity, with balance, and with scriptural precision so that those who are hearing can learn and can understand and gain wisdom to make a distinction between what is right, what is wrong, that which is authentic, and that which is counterfeit. Before we do that, we want to just make sure we go before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in prayer. Now, Father, we thank you once again for your bountiful love and mercy and grace. We thank you that you are the head of the church. You said that you walk to and fro through the candlesticks. You told us in your word, Lord God, that we should make a difference between clean and unclean, holy and unholy. And Lord, you said that we should be holy and that we should be blameless before you in love in the book of Ephesians. And God, today we stand for truth. We stand for righteousness. No flesh glory in your presence today, God. No self-righteousness glory in your presence today because our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. And we know that when you describe filthy rags, God, you were talking about those rags that women used when they were in their menstruation period. Those dirty, filthy rags. That's what our righteousness is. But God, we thank you that we're clothed and we're robed in your righteousness. And today we pray that those who are attending and listening to this particular podcast will be blessed and they will be enriched. That they will find, Lord, God, wisdom and truth that they can stand and they can counter the very alarming scourge of homosexuality that is pervading and persistent throughout the world. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray today. And we want to just make sure that as we get into this particular uh, podcast, I believe it's important to say and mention what Michael Jackson said. Michael Jackson said, lies, they run sprints very quickly. But the truth It runs marathons, or in other words, it endures forever. Mark Twain said that a lie will travel all the way around the world before truth can even get its boots on to defend it. And so true are the words that were spoken by Adam Schiff, who was giving final remarks in the infamous Donald Trump inquiry for impeachment. He said, write It matters. Truth matters. And if we don't have truth, he says we're lost. So within the church, there are those who claim to be Christians and born again and filled with the spirit who are also gay. They feel that they are spiritually all right to practice homosexuality. They may have talents to teach 
to really speak well, to sing and play instruments, and they really enjoy the church social genre. They enjoy the atmosphere and the activity surrounding the church environment. Many enjoy the platform the church actually affords them, and they flourish because pastors are more concerned with the political, the financial aspects of their involvement, and they adopt the post-modernity posture. And have provided a total blind eye, and they've also incorporated a very silent tongue to the homosexual behavior that is in the church today. Well, many people who are pastors or those who condone homosexuality will say things like this. Well, adultery and fornication and liars and emulations are also wrong. Should we not permit adulterers and fornicators to sing in the choir or be a part of the dance and praise team or play their musical instruments in the music department or even preach a sermon? Where does it end? Where do we draw the line is the clarion call of those who condone homosexuality. See, what the scripture does provide ample examples of unbecoming conduct in the church. Just take a few moments and read Titus 2 and 3. There are so many gay pastors who have perverted biblical perspectives and they defy the clear teachings of scripture. And they start churches lauding their first gentleman. Instead of the first lady, they have a first gentleman. They have their posters up all over Atlanta, Georgia. A man sitting down in a chair and another man looking feminine with their hands on their shoulders saying, I'm the first gentleman. And they feel that that's a legitimate representation of God's voice and that that spiritual template is to be accepted in the body of Christ. So it is with Pastor Mark Hurd of Cincinnati, Ohio's The Good Church. Also note Pastor Aaron and Gentleman Job Jones Wade of the Community Church of Washington, D.C. They do the exact same things. They're the pastor and the first gentleman. They live a homosexual lifestyle in the church, but yet they come out on Sundays and Wednesdays and all of their Bible studies and they project that, well, we're gay. We have sex, we have oral sex, we have anal sex, we kiss and we rub beards or whatever else they do, but yet we're still godly men. Should the body of Christ deny Holy Scripture and embrace these self-initiated ministries? Should believers condone the perverse lifestyle because the persons appear sincere? They're nice people. And they seem to be dedicated to spiritual, but not godly things. They use terms for their ministry, such as we're inclusive in our ministry. We're loving. And anyone who opposes them or has a different position or a biblical position who will stand against the homosexual lifestyles, they call them homophobic almost parallel to being called a racist, or they call you xenophobic and intolerant. But I can still hear the Bible in Proverbs 14 and 12. It cries out so loud. What did you say? It says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. 
And today we want to make sure that we look at another aspect that must be examined during this Truth Matters podcast. And it is human sexuality. What is the genesis of it and where is it birth? How do we know God's position concerning human sexuality? Well, let's look at Genesis 1 and 2. For those who believe that the Bible is inspired and is the final arbiter of our life conduct, must ask the most important question regarding homosexuality. What's that question, Pastor Adams? What was God's purpose in creating human sexuality in the first place? That's the most important question. See, the answer to this question is more important than any other area of our discussion today. For the very beginning of this revelation to humankind, God has revealed his order of creation, especially as it relates to sexuality. In Genesis 1, we are told that one purpose in creating the two sexes was for what? Procreation or being procreative. Through the sexual union of a male and a female. Slow down a little bit, Pastor Adams. Through the sexual union of a male and a female. We could reproduce the race, the human race of people. See, male and female, he created thing. He created them. When God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 1 and 27, 28, more detail is provided in Genesis 2. However, where we are told that in addition to the procreation, there was also something that is called unitive function of sexuality that has to do with fulfilling our need for companionship. And the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper that's comparable to him in Genesis 2 and 18. Then after God created Eve, it wasn't a man, it wasn't Steve. No, he created Eve. So God's original intent was to have Adam who was male and his companion was supposed to be a female? Yeah, that's the way it clearly reads. And he presented her to Adam. Adam rejoiced in his God-given companion. The chapter concludes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. See, there are so many people today who says, Well, same-sex marriage is is acceptable. Yes, we have legislation in America where if your conscience and if your values and your morals require or necessitate that you marry a person of your same sex, well, we're not a theocracy. Our country allows people to participate in things that are not necessarily biblically inspired or mandated or approved. So, If you decide that you want to marry another woman if you're female, or if you want to marry another man when you're a male, well, our country allows you to make your own choice because that's what a democracy does. But God's word is still the foundation that you're going to be judged by. If God says that his intent is that a man be with a woman and a woman be with a man, It says that they shall become one flesh, not a man and a man and a woman and a woman, according to Genesis 2, 24 and 25. In the second chapter, several items emerge. First, man has a need for companionship because God said it's not good that man should be alone in Genesis 2 and 18. Second, God makes provision to meet this need, the creation of a woman. Concerning this, 
I want you to listen to the words of Samuel Dresner. He's a visiting professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary. He states, See, woman is formed and becomes his partner. In her, man finds completion. And third, God ordains the institution of marriage. We are told that the man would, one, leave his father and mother, two, cleave to his wife, and three, they shall become one flesh. Thus, we find the heterosexuality is proclaimed to be God's natural order of creation. Yep. Yep. Think on that for a minute. See, in the New Testament, whenever the subject of sexuality comes up, the heterosexual norm of marriage is always upheld. For example, Jesus, in answer to the question, quoted Genesis 1 and 2. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? So for all of you preachers and pastors out there who condone and uh, actually support and undergird the erroneous and egregious teaching that it can be male and male and female and female, you fly right in the face and contrary to what Jesus said. How can you preach Jesus's message? How can you say that you represent Jesus Christ? How can you say that you represent the gospel and the morals of, of the Christian ethic and go contrary to what Jesus taught? Jesus said he made them at the beginning male and female, not male and male. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not any man separate, according to Matthew 19, 4 and 6. So if God preordained that it be a man and a woman, and that a man and a woman be joined together, He said, don't let anyone undo or separate that union. But the gay and lesbian movement and agenda, in order to facilitate and to support the presuppositions that, well, whatever my urges and whatever my desires and whatever my lusts are, I have to make sure that I change the scriptures or that I adjust the frameworks of God's holiness to fit my urges. What I consider to be my norm, what I consider to be my relative situation ethic. Now, listen, in addition, the Apostle Paul reaffirms the norm of heterosexuality in several of his letters, also quoting the Genesis passages. He speaks about it in Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. Please take time to read this. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 and 3. Also verses 10 through 16. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 and verse 12. And while some protest that we cannot take Genesis 1 and 2 as a modern scientific trustees, These chapters nonetheless teach us spiritual truths concerning God's intended order for his creation. It is only the heterosexual union of marriage that we find the actual fulfillment of God's intended order. Both procreative and unitive, however, pro-homosexual writers argue that 
While homosexual activity in and of itself cannot be procreative, it can still fulfill the unitive role of Genesis 2. Now, in response to this, Harvey writes this, and I want you to pay attention. He says, consider the three common forms of the sexual activity between homosexual persons. What are they? There's mutual masturbation in no way constitutes a physical union. It doesn't. Mutual masturbation, it doesn't constitute a physical union. Now, among female homosexuals, some form of genital massage is used to bring the partner to orgasm. But this is not a physical union either. Now, when it comes down to men, in anal or oral intercourse between those males, the intromission of the penis in an opening of the body not meant to be used for the genital expression of sexuality, it can't be called a true physical union either. Now, by way of contrast, I want you to pay attention here. The heterosexual union aptly symbolizes the psychological and the spiritual union that ought to exist between a man and a woman. What are you saying here, Pastor Adams? Just anatomically, if you look at the sexual members and the genitalia of the man and the woman, they were designed for a man to have sexual relationships with a woman vaginally. And that through that vaginal sexual relationship, it it recreates and it causes procreation and it brings life into the world. That was God's original design. Why should I even have to talk about this? You learned about this in science class in the fifth grade. See, one does not need to be a Ph.D. to realize that homosexuality is anatomically aberrant. Well, that is, there is a created biological order intended in our sexuality. No one can deny this. Now, as an editorialist at Harvard's Peninsula Journal, it writes, listen to, listen to this, this is so important. It says, how can homosexual people be happy when they're persistently deceiving themselves? How are they deceiving themselves, Pastor Adams? Well, it's by believing that it is just as natural for sperm to swim through the urethra and through the vagina as it is for sperm to swim through the rectum and swim to feces as it is to swim through the vagina and through a woman's vagina into what is called her eggs. Are you saying that that is just as natural? Well, it's unnatural. It is absolutely anatomically consistent to think that God designed sperm to to swim through a rectum into feces as it is to believe that as God said originally, He designed the woman for sexual procreation so that sperm will swim to eggs to bring life into the world. 
See, the true religious goal of human sexuality can be seen not as a satisfaction or orgasm, but it as it, it's designed for completeness. This fulfillment is unattainable in homosexuality. Now, now that we have considered God's positive purposes in creating human sexuality, we're ready to look at biblical texts which explicitly address homosexuality. Let's take a look at a few of them. Now let's look at, there is a, an authoritative source for determining what our actions and positions should be concerning sexual behavior. Yeah, I, I say yes, there is. Definitely there is. It must come from the heart of a loving, eternal creator. The record of what our creator Jesus Christ spoke concerning homosexuality is found in Genesis 19, verse 4 through verse 11. It says, Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came in to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. They're virgins. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under my protection of my roof. They said, Get out of my way. This fellow came here as an alien. And now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved toward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and they shut the door. Then they stuck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness. They struck him with blindness so that they could not find the door. Now let's take a look at our, our great theologian, uh, Matthew Henry, what he said about this verse. He says, commentary of the Hebrew text is, it now appeared beyond contradiction that the cry of Sodom was no louder than there was a cause for. This night's work was enough to fill the measure, for we find here that they were all wicked. Wickedness had become universal and they were unanimous in vile design. Here were old and young, and all of them from every quarter engaged in this riot. The old were not past it. The young had soon come up to it. Either they had no magistrates to keep the peace and to protect the peaceable, or the magistrates were themselves aiding and abetting in this activity. When the disease of sin has become epidemic, it is fatal to any place, according to Isaiah 1, 5, and 7, that they had arrived at the highest pitch of wickedness. They were sinners before the Lord exceedingly. It was the most unnatural and abominable wickedness that they were now set upon, a sin that still bears their name, and it is called sodomy. They were carried headlong by those vile affections. Romans 1 and 26, which were worse than brutish in the eternal reproach of the human nature and which cannot be thought of without horror by those that have the least spark of virtue in any remains of natural light and conscience. 
Those that allow themselves an unnatural uncleanness are marked for the vengeance of eternal flower. Fire. Read Jude 7. They were not ashamed to own it and to prosecute their design by force and arms. The practice would have been bad enough if they had been carried on by intrigue and wheedling, but they proclaimed war with virtue and bade open defiance to it. Hence, daring sinners are said to declare their sin as Sodom is. It is consistent then that God will reward, will warn us to avoid this wickedness. It's so important today that as we look at scripture, we find that this act of homosexuality was considered vile, weakness, animus. It was considered to be a debauchery, a reproach. It was also looked at as something that was horrible, totally unclean, and unnatural, devoid of virtue. Leviticus 18 and 22 said, You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. What is the gravity of using the term abomination? It's the most egregious indictment God can pronounce upon any deed. It literally means spiritual nausea. It makes God want to puke. Verse 25 states, The entire land is defiled thereby, and the land itself vomits out its inhabitants. All these prohibitions explicitly condemn homosexuality. It is an abomination before God, is what the scripture says. We are told that they are not really relevant today. Why? First, the pro-homosexual interpretation is that since these condemnations are contained in the holiness code of Israel, they're not applicable to ancient Israelites to keep them separate from the pagan practices of their neighboring tribes. Second, parts of this code are not kept today. Letha Scanzoni and Virginia Ramey Mollicott, they assert that consistency and fairness would seem to dictate, dictate that if the Israelite holiness code is to be invoked against the 20th century homosexuals, it should likewise be invoked against such common practices like eating, rare steak or wearing mixed fabrics, and having marital intercourse during the menstruation period. Much effort need to be expended answering these objections. First, God did not condemn certain behavior for the Israelites only because Israel was to be kept separate from the Canaanite practice. Otherwise, if the Canaanites did not practice child sacrifice and bestiality, would these then have been all right for the Israelites to practice also? Of course not. Having sexual relationships with an animal and killing one's child are inherently wrong and evil. Even when they are not related to pagan worship, they are abominations before God. And yet, these specific prohibitions also are listed in the passage, both immediately before and after the condemnation of homosexuality in Leviticus 18.21-23. Other prohibitions listed in Leviticus include incest and adultery. Were these only 
condemned because of the Canaanites? To argue in this fashion is dishonest and denies that there are eternal moral absolutes. There are eternal moral absolutes, people of God. What of the fact that other parts of the Holiness Code in Leviticus are not kept today? Again, the answer is simple. The Holiness Code contained different types of commands. Some were related to dietary regulations and to ceremonial cleanliness, and these have been done away with in the New Testament, according to Colossians 2 and 16. Others, though, were moral codes, and as such are timeless. Thus, incest, child sacrifice, homosexuality, bestiality, adultery, and the like are still abominations before God. Are there moral absolutes? Is there anything that provides a standard of morality in the world? We at Truth Matters Ministry say yes, there are. In America, there are denominations and ministries that open their Bibles every day and they play hopscotch over and around texts that clearly oppose and condemn the homosexual lifestyle. This is just like Mormons and Jehovah Witness who are have presuppositions, concepts in place, and they deny things such as the Trinity or the, the unification of God. And because of that, they have to dilute and allegorize and they have pretext to make sure that their position is is upheld, even at the expense of standing on the truth of God's revelation to mankind. And today we just thank you for taking time to join this Truth Matters podcast. And our intent is to not be callous or to be abrasive or to be condemning. But we're just simply standing for the truth of the word so that people can be free from the bondage of homosexuality, false doctrines and false teachings and erroneous interpretations of scripture. And we want you to pray for us that we will be ever, ever vigilant, vigilant and will forever be firm and will be bold to stand up for the truth that has once and for all been delivered into the sea.